episode is brought to you by Portland Distro. If you love underground music and movies, go to portlanddistro.com for licensed shirts, vinyl, CDs, and more. Go to portlanddistro.com. Plug in the discount code MikeHill666 for 15% off at portlanddistro.com. Steph, it's great hearing from you again, man. Uh, it's been a while, and uh, I just wanted to catch up with you, man, see what's going on. Oh, you know, back in New York, uh, getting back into it. Things are opening, and um, the record's out. Also, I guess today is uh, 9-11, so uh, a lot of people are in my thoughts for sure. And, um, you know, being a New Yorker, born and raised here. Absolutely, man. It's, uh, you know, I, 9-11 was such a heavy thing nationally, but specifically if you are, are a New Yorker, to have to have experienced that on a daily basis and it just being in front of you all the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, I live and work in New York City. So, um, and back then I was living in Long Beach, but I was, you know, commuting in every day. And it was, Long Beach is a lot of NYPD, fire department, so... Our, our community certainly felt it for sure. And my family actually worked in that building and they were actually not in the building that day, luckily. So yeah, and it affected all, all of us, right? I mean, we Man. felt the wave everywhere. So big respect to, you know, all the people that helped and joined together and everyone, New Yorkers definitely stuck together during that moment in time, for sure. And here we are two decades later. It's crazy to think that so much time has passed because I remember, um, you know, I, I was uh, working in New Jersey and commuting to uh, to Brooklyn every day. And uh, I remember being at work, sitting in the office, and, um, you know, someone mentioned something about a, being a crash into the World Trade Center. And, you know, back in the 90s, another plane had actually crashed into the World Trade Center. And I was like, huh. You know, I wonder what's going on here. Then when the second one happened, that's when it was like, okay, this is some shit going on. And then from there, history was being made. You know, dark, very dark history, dark moment in history. And um, I feel like the, the United States has never been the same since then. Yeah, a lot of things changed. Um, you know, people who are growing up, I mean, listen, I'm in my 50s, right? So people who are younger... You know, it was just a page in history to them. They didn't really get to live it. And uh, they didn't realize what it was like to go onto a subway and see military people with, you know, military armor on and machine guns standing in Union Square. And we were on edge for a long time after that. It took us a, took those wounds a long time to heal. But, you know, everything changed when we went onto a plane you know, they take our shoes off. Everything really changed after that. Uh, if you grew up with that, you know, with taking your shoes off, it was normal life for you. But if you remember before and then you remember after, things certainly changed. Yeah, I remember taking flights prior to that. And uh, it was just literally no security. <clears throat> you just basically walked onto the plane, you know. And, uh, you know, of course, yeah. they checked your tickets and everything. But there wasn't like this homeland security efforts like they have these days. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. The interesting thing about 9-11, too, is that I, I felt for a long, for, for the first time in history, it seemed like people actually 
had come together a little bit, you know what I mean? Like in New York City, I felt like there wasn't as much tension. There wasn't like as much, um, like people were cooperating more for lack of a better term, you know? Yeah. And which was diametrically the opposite happened during the pandemic where it just became polarized. And if you were wearing a mask, you were this type of person. If you weren't, you were, you know, personal freedom and all this, like everyone became uh, Patrick Henry. You know, um, (laughs) you know, give me liberty or give me death. You know what I mean? And it's just like this really weird narrative about freedom and and all this stuff erupted instead of people being like, all right, we're all in danger. You know, we're all at risk at this unknown threat. We don't know what the, you know, the the parameters of this thing are. And let's just kind of, you know, be there for each other. But that really isn't what happened in New York or anywhere else in the country. Yeah, it was a it was a it was a weird time for a lot of for a lot of people changed the way we looked at everything and we realized that you know we live in the united states where you know we take sometimes things for granted our safety for one and then all of a sudden we were looking over our shoulder everywhere we weren't really so sure where things were gonna go and um it definitely changed us um i mean i also grew up in new york when it was kind of a shithole too so i was always kind of looking over my shoulder but this was different this was like a different thing than just like, you know, street crime or something like that. This was this was a different level of it. And it, it affected everyone throughout. We started looking everywhere. Our, our whole infrastructure changed and where we were. And I remember not wanting to be on a subway car or a bus or, you know, necessarily in isolated areas where I felt like I was in possibly in danger. And then, um, like I said, a lot of my friends and family are all nypd and fire department and stuff and i was hearing you know the recovery you know um i mean Voss lives down in that area she was lived in tribeca back then so you know all my friends were everyone was living on the lower east side and downtown and things were closed off it was it was an unusual time it was a very unusual time but anyway my respect to that time period and all the people that were lost and um hopefully you know we, today will be a day I know they're going to have a lot of uh, people speaking and stuff. And um, hopefully it'll be a positive environment and people will learn learn from our history moving forward. Yeah. And, and not be selective about what they want to see in the news or in history or, uh, you know, built to create any other false narratives that might be out there, weird conspiracies about stuff. You know, it's, uh, mm-hmm. that's what I really hope people get back to finding the truth instead of supporting false narratives and conspiracies, you know, and I've, yeah. I've been guilty of that too, man. Like I, I used to love reading about conspiracy theories and all this stuff, the JFK assassination, the moon landing, but it was all fun back then. And now it's uh, turned into actual violence against people. And that's a real, real tragedy in my opinion. Yeah. I would like to see a little more unity today amongst, amongst everyone. Um, so yeah i've been guilty of the same things myself yeah <clears throat> so um but anyway that was then this is now we'll move forward hopefully we've learned from the past and uh gives a better path path to the future exactly man you know and uh yeah for anyone out there who was listening to metal matters uh the the podcast I was uh, hosting for Gimme Radio. You guys might remember Steph. Um, I had I did a series of episodes actually on um, the Godden record, which came out 
uh, was that 2020 or 2019? 2019. 2019, right? Because it was the it was the uh, one of the the top 40 for decibel in 2019, and I think you and I started we we talked about that in 2020, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I think so it made number, was it number ten? I think decibel, maybe. Yeah, it was really high on the list. You know, yeah, they were, we made the top ten. I think. Yeah, it was it was really <laughs> impressive, man. And so, if we haven't listened to that episode of Metal Matters or that series of episodes, go back and check it out. I talked to Steph, I talked to Tony, and I talked to Voss. And of course, those are the three primary members of Godin. And uh, you know, if you haven't listened to that record, first of all, I don't know what the fuck's wrong with you because that's one of the one of my favorite albums of the last five years probably and uh you you would know that if you were listening to metal matters because i you guys were in our our <laughs> list too and um yeah i just want to just reconnect with uh with steph and uh you know talk about a bunch of stuff because that's not the only stuff that he's involved in and um you know for those old old heads out there you might remember winter which is another uh, another band that another legendary new york doom band or sludge doom punk crust whatever you want to call it <laughs> influential yeah. band a lot of people reference them uh if you're a fan of evoken you'd probably really really appreciate uh the music that steph has done in both winter and Godden. you know and thank um you, thank yeah, you. Man. so have you been doing any working on any music i mean i know like touring is and live shows are just starting to, to come around now uh, so during this downtime period, have you been working on any anything new? Um, I've been we, we keeping it moving. You know, that was a lot of work to do that record. So I need to take a little break after it was kind of done. But um, we're probably on like a third or fourth song at this point now and starting to write some new concepts for the next record. And it's been, um, you know, we've been doing a lot of us like everybody else have been kind of collaborating in more of like a remote kind of way you know just sending ideas and stuff back and forth to each other and then um we plan to just track it everything the old school way like we did the first record but collaborating has been being done more in a remote kind of way which now, is fine yeah you do what you have to do that's the way that's the way it seems to be done these days and and um you know how how have you been finding that process um well you know i'm a little bit of like uh like a geek when it comes to equipment and recording and so on i kind of like it i like being in my own studio it's like my own little cave i have all my toys there amps and different things that i use to record and um, i don't mind that process at all i mean i've been doing it for like 20 years that way um and i like it i have no issues with it i you know, it's something I started doing the last few years, even before the pandemic was because um, now nowadays you have all these tools at your disposal, you know, all these like plugins and amp modelers and, you know, loop packages and stuff, which for most of my life, that stuff was first, first of all, kind of hard to navigate. And secondly, completely alien to me, you know, because I was like, oh, I have a drummer. Why don't I just go down to the practice base and bash out a bunch of ideas? But with uh, with tombs, like several years ago, uh, we became a little bit more decentralized, and everyone kind of lived in different areas. So I learned how to use all this stuff, and um, you know that's pretty much the way to go these days. And and there's a, a pretty pretty like there really isn't much of a learning curve any, anymore with using all these modelers and everything. If you know how to put a reverb into a channel, you know how to you know use an amp modeler these days. 
Yeah, I mean, um, I was really fortunate. My brother's a recording engineer. And, you know, he's like a legitimate engineer. And um, I kind of, when he would have interns at his studio back in the probably 90s, he would um, have like interns and, you know, they'd learn how to use patch bays, how MIDI worked and how to put the things on different MIDI channels and um, how, to, you know, how to trigger samples and stuff. And I would, when he would have those classes, I would kind of bring like a notebook and I would write things down and... Um, I kind of learned from him. He was pretty much taught me how to use it. And I started using digital performer back then. Cause that's what he used. Cause digital performer back in the day was really advanced in the MIDI part of it. Right. And my brother, my brother's studio was more, uh, electronica. And he did a lot of the liquid sky, um, records that came out with like, you know, all the people like soul slinger, DJ spooky, and a lot of the drum and bass stuff that was coming out of New York. And um, so MIDI was really important back then. And, um, you know, he taught me how to use, I used to walk around on, you know, be on the subway with a Yamaha QY70, which was like a little like drum machine kind of thing. And it had channels where you could make sections. And I, I actually made a demo in 2003 where I kind of like programmed the drums and then played everything and recorded it. And it was very primitive. And I would bring that to rehearsals Um when winter tried to redo things in 2003 and be like, Hey, these are some songs I have. And, you know, they were primitive. And, you know, I would say to the drummer, Hey, this is, I'm not a drummer, but this is kind of what the feel I'm going for the tempo. These are the sections. This is how I kind of, uh, orchestrated it. Um, and that's how I would use it. It would be like a template for me. And then as things became more advanced, I slowly indoctrinated some of the other technologies that were available um, I also live in New York, so I couldn't be cranking amplifiers and stuff in an apartment. So I became really accustomed to using a lot of the line stuff, line six stuff at, at the time, like, you know, the pod XTs and later on the HDs and then eventually some of the uh, later plug in type of things, as well as I always kept all of my original equipment from the winter days. And it's actually still set up the Tonys. So I still use all the old stuff and I use the new stuff. And I know that, you know, we spoke about the recording process and, you know, I think records are going to get better from here on out now that musicians have more control over the end product and it actually giving the power back to the artist. So when I did the winter album, when I did the Thorn album, we needed a little bit of a budget money so that we can go into a studio and record. And we were recording to like Ampex, like, what was it? 496. I can't remember what all oh, the tapes, tapes were. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Jesus. So, wow. So that's what we, that's what winter recorded to. I mean, that was 1989. We recorded that the demo tape was recorded to the same type of tape. Uh, the Thorn album was all tape. So when things switched over and I had my brother's guidance, I kind of looked at it as like, wow, this is freedom. You mean I could record and do all this on my own and basically have like a pretty finished product. Um, this is powerful. I need to, I need to do this. So I saw the writing on the wall a long time ago. Um, and I embraced it and I'm glad that I did back then. And that was kind of the process. But today I, I basically record all the guitars, bass dry. I reamp things to, you know, real amplifiers. You know, I love the triple Rex, um, and different amplifiers and, and I also use, could use that dry track. I can go into a plug and I can send it back out to my pods. And, you know, I just use like 
basically what most recording engineers use, you know, like a radial reamp or, um, you know, a J, uh, what is that? The J, uh, 86. Yeah. You know, just to send things in and out of the, the computer so I could have control later when I'm mixing. Something you don't want to necessarily, like the old days, you track something and then you go to mix it and you're like, oh, you know, this doesn't really sit in the mix the way I thought it would. It sounded really big when it was by itself, but now with everything else, it doesn't really work the same. So having, being able to reamp things really gave a lot of flexibility. Um, and I like that process. I think it's great. And I think I'm hearing a lot of, like the Serpentine Path record, that was kind of an eye opener of a bunch of younger guys, younger than me. And Jay was also in it has engineering background. And I mean, that that album was recorded in Jay's basement. And, um, you know, we used Pro Tools, you know, a couple of interfaces and everyone did their thing. And that record sounds pretty pro as far as I'm concerned. I think it sounds great, man. Actually, actually, we recorded a song, two songs in Jay's basement. We recorded two Samhain covers there. We did uh, Mother of Mercy and Kiss of Steel down there. (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, this actually sounds pretty legit for like a basement recording. You know what I mean? Yep. Use good prints, recording principles. And you can make a pretty pro album if you you know follow some of the basics. For, for me, the drums were complicated because drums, you got tuning of drums, you got mic placement and a lot of other things. So my brother was more helpful because he's a recording engineer. Um, and... But yeah, I mean, Jay, Jay did a great job with that. I mean, he works at SIR and he's around um, a lot of engineers and sound. And I think he has a little bit of a recording background. I'm not sure if he went to, did a little formal recording training as well. Yeah, I mean, and I definitely, think, he's, he's definitely good at it for sure. I think Sanford Parker was a little bit of a, little bit of a, uh, uh, a mentor to him as well, too. And Sanford's great as well. He did a lot of great records, too. Oh yeah, so. that's right. Because an Earthly Trance recorded most of most of their re- uh, records with Sanford, I believe. Yeah, I was Sanford was going to ultimately be the person was was one of the people I had in my, um, my thoughts to mix the record. Ultimately, went with Roy Mayorga. Right. But um, but Sanford was definitely in my my top few people. And um, yeah, anyway. Yeah, Sanford's so. great, man. We did um, Monarch, not Monarchy of Shadows, uh, All Empires Fall, that EP. Uh, he recorded and mixed that record for us, and you know he's he's top notch guy, like a yeah. great dude to record with. The funny thing yeah. is, like we're talking about that tape. Uh, for any any of you kids out there um, who haven't experienced the analog recording world, you might spend over a thousand dollars on just recording media if you were going to make a record. Like you you would literally <laughs> spend like twelve hundred dollars on tape to make a full length record. 100%. You know, nowadays, yep. $1,200 might be your total recording budget. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, 1200 bucks, you could buy yourself a really nice uh, Focusrite Scarlet, a couple of microphones, a couple of things, and you basically have stuff to start your, start your recording process. That's why I feel this new medium is so powerful for artists. They don't have to borrow money from record labels anymore. They could make their own record. They could lay out all their own artwork. They can make a finished product and then they could shop that to labels and not really have to have uh, this big recoup that we all used to have back in the day that most record labels say that you never made the recoup, you know? So, um, I mean, the Thorn record was recorded at Electric Ladyland and we had 
Roadrunner gave us a pretty nice budget to do that record. And man, if I had that budget now, I forget about what I could probably do. But actually, money, more money wouldn't really made a better record. Um, and, and the other thing is, we got caught in that, that whole circle of, are we ever going to recoup this? Yeah, great. We recorded Electric Ladyland. It was nice to see the murals on the wall that Jimi Hendrix looked at. And it was nice to be in the A room and to be in there. But ultimately, it would never recovered from the recording budget. And that happened with a lot of artists. So doing this the way it is now and being able to put your videos and to put your music up on YouTube and to get it out there, it's completely different for the younger artists. And I think it's great. I don't, I don't have any of the... The, I don't think I would ever want to go back. We spoke about this once before. I don't think I would ever want to go back to recording in that way to tape. I, I have had drummers all the time. Say, yeah, but you get the tape compression. And, and I'm like, come on, man, really? I mean, the, the, the editing and the, the amount of flexibility that we could do now it, for the little bit of tape compression that you're talking about and the technology we have now, I don't think it really makes a difference anymore. Um, to go to tape i don't get it yeah Can't I know, edit. Man. It, 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 the thing that always cracks me up about it is like people read that and they, re, they just kind of repeat it you know without actually like i i think that you would have to have like an extremely high-end hi-fi system to really even know the difference between digital and analog and i certainly don't have a system of that quality to make these statements to make any kind of assessment about that you know Oh yeah, I'm, I'm like I'm like have like my high end is shot with the tinnitus and the hearing loss. I, I wouldn't hear that shit anyway, to be honest with you. And I don't really hear the. I think, you know, listen, man, you could take a track now and you could really, you really have a lot of artistic creative creativity that you could do with tracks now too, especially with drums. Um, I mean, on some of the new stuff we're doing, we're literally using B drums, um, and we're triggering our own drum sounds that we made as well as other, you know, there's plugins like Steve Slate and studio drummer and whatever, you know, you could, you could really fine tune and really develop your sound. And there are things you could do with instruments now to, to really give them a lot more balls and just make them really kick ass a lot more than they did anyway in the past. And you could do it in your bedroom. So I'm all for it. I'm all for the new process for sure. I remember the days of recording drums on tape, man, and how fucking nerve wracking it was because it was just like you, you know, nowadays there's all sorts of punching. You can punch in and, you know, you got the click track going and you can really dial your performances in. But back then it was like the only way you could really, it, I think um, the tape machine was one of those Otari, I think, made a tape machine where you would, you could punch in with like extreme accuracy. And that you had to have like some completely unaffordable tape machine to be able to do that, you know, and, and it just made like the endless, you had to play the entire song as a drummer, basically exactly the way you were, you wanted it to, to sound like you couldn't punch in like a guitar player could back in the old days, right. you know, and it's right. like that would, you would take days and days and days of getting just fucking drum performances and, you know, and like, well, I guess that's going to be it, man. You know, I guess this is what we're going to live with, and, and that's kind of how it is. And now it's like, you know, you can edit drums, you can cut things out, you can, you know, do all this stuff. And uh, 
as I'm saying this, I'm sure there's somebody out there like there. Well, you know, that's all cheating, man. That's like, you know, I go What's cheating about it, though. Recording is it. cheating. I mean, recording is not live. I mean, when you see a band live, that's a completely different environment than just even the most old school analog recording methods. You know, 100 percent. Yeah. So it's, you know, but it's a lot of fun, man. It's a lot of fun doing all this digital stuff and you got so much freedom and, and there's options out there that just weren't available. You know, one of the reasons I chose, since we're talking about drums, one of the main reasons Roy Mayoga became my number one choice. For one, he's a drummer and he's a phenomenal drummer. And he also, when working with him in Thorn, I also realized what a good ear he had as an engineer. Roy did live sound at Wetlands. He did live sound at CBGB's and he did that for years. And he really knew how to fine tune and make things sound heavy. He just knew that. It's innately in his own personal playing, and he's a pretty astute drummer. So when we recorded the Godin record, we recorded in Tony's basement. We used old, I bought old school drums, and you know, there was like a Pearl set, MXL, it was Maple, it was a gold double kick, two kick drums, and we put it all together, we recorded it. My brother tracked it. But we had some confines of doing in Tony's basement, drop ceiling, not necessarily, you know, sound bouncing all over the place, a lot of mic bleeding, um, you know, wasn't a professional recording studio, so to say. When Roy went to to mix it, he called me up and he's like, Steph, the performances are great. I don't have a problem with that, but, um, you know, there's some cymbal stuff that's not, you know, I know you guys have like drop ceilings, you sent me pictures of where you recorded, and he's like, there's just sound stuff that the environment that you recorded in is just not as far from proper. And it wasn't. It was in someone's basement, you know, like a linoleum floor. I mean, it was, you know, we did what, what, what we had. We wanted the flexibility to record when we wanted to record over a five-year period and leave microphones set up. So we had to trade off certain things, right? Here we have someone, Tony's going to leave his home to us to use to record, but it's not a recording studio. So... Roy was able to go in there and with the technology we have now, he's like, you know, we were able to, you know, Sam replace a couple of different elements here and there. You know, if anyone says that's cheating, I mean, how is that cheating? The performance is still there. It's still the drummer playing it. It's just that the kick drum might have sounded like a box. You know what I mean? Because yeah, of the totally. way it was recorded or whatever it may be. So you're taking the performance of what the of what the drummer's doing, it's just you're gonna use uh, maybe or add to that sound or add something else to it. That is part of the creative part of being able to record now. You could make things really monstrous now, and that's what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to create something new. So with artists being able to use this technology, they're able to do that. They're able to enhance the sonic you know, record that they're giving you. And to be honest with you, it gives you way more flexibility as an artist than you've ever had before. It gives all the power back, but it does have its downside, right? You're recording home, you know, guitar is one thing, but drums, completely different thing. You're talking about an analog instrument that, you know, I couldn't sit behind a drum kit and tune it up properly, just saying, don't know how to do it. So yeah, some of those things were an issue. Going forward after doing that, realizing because I originally said to Roy, oh, come on, man. We spent so much time. I don't want to do that. And he's like, trust me, I have to do it. The record won't sound consistent. 
if if we if we just let it fly the way it is, you have three different drummers on the album. They're all using different snare drums. They're all using different cymbals. They're all using the same toms. They're using the same kit with the same mics on it, but they're all playing different. Uh, those different drums, snare drum, cymbals. <clears throat> I have to unify some of it so that when you go from one track to the next track, it doesn't sound completely different. Yeah, it sounds like a mixtape instead of an album, you know? Right, you need it to sound consistent. Yeah. And that was, he's like, that's really important if you want the record to sound professional. And I know that that's what you're, you're looking for a record. And I wanted a very specific sound. So um, going forward, I realized after that, it was a big wake up call for me. So I had one drummer living in Colorado, one drummer living in Oakland, one living in New York. And then the pandemic started. And I says, you know, we got it. We need to find a solution because we're not going to be able to sit in Tony's basement. Well, actually, before so, you go on, can you tell me who, who can you tell us who those three drummers were? Yes, absolutely. So <laughs> okay. I have uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I should always mention everybody. I try to remember everyone. We have Vic Pullen. We have Jason Franz and we have Scott uh, Wynum. So those three drummers, I got everyone together and I said, listen, we got to do this differently. Um, Jason said why don't we consider using the V drums? We'll make our own proprietary kit that we like, right? So we made a kit with Vic and Jason, specifically those two put their heads together. And with me, we kind of like said, this is the type of kit I would like to have, at least cl somewhat close to it. Because when you hear a certain sound, it makes you feel a certain way, which also makes you play a certain way. Absolutely. So the drums yeah. have to sound a certain way. I mean, I'm not going to play like a 60s jazz kit and then try to play heavy music. It's just not going to work. So we made we made a kit that would sound as monstrous as we wanted it to be. And then we use that as like part of our skeleton. And now every time we do a new song, Vic has that kit that we made. Jason has that kit. So when everyone is sending stuff, we're all like you and we're all using the same drum software. Vic has a like a TD50, I think. And I think Jason has an old older V drum kit, you know, MIDI to USB adapter, plugs it into his laptop, goes right into one of the those um, drumming um, sequence programs. Right. And they they I'm I'm the host, right? So they send me MIDI track. I add it to my sequence and the tempo and, and we work from there. Every time we update something, they just send, I just make a new take and they send me a new, a new drum line. I'm like, you know, I don't really like going the way it's going into the verse or the chorus. Can we do a different fill there? They send me a new string track of the MIDI with, with any type of edits, which is what I would do in a rehearsal anyway. Right. Yeah. If I was with a drummer, I might, I mean, this is, this is not like when people say cheating, I go, how is it cheating? I would be doing this in a rehearsal. Hey, Vic, that, that fill you do before you go to the bridge or whatever, give me something like this. But now I call him up on the phone and say, hey, I got your thing. I'm listening to it. And verse two, can you do this thing? He goes, oh, yeah, sure. He plays it. He sends it back to me as if he was, you know, in the studio at his own leisure, at his own time with the proprietary kit. So I think going forward, it's probably going to be more like that. Um, I know that like uh, the new the Slipknot drummer, he, he uses V drums and a lot of younger guys are using that new kit that looks like a, it's a V drum kit, but it looks like a real drum kit. Oh, wow. I and, didn't even know about that. 
Yeah. I think the Slipknot guy, uh, I can't remember his name, but I think he's endorsed. I think he, I think he literally uses that live now. And there's a new kid. I can't remember the name of it. Um, if you go to roll in sight, it literally looks like a, like a drum kit. You can't tell that this, the only thing you, that looks different is there's like black symbols on it. And I look at that and I go, that's probably one of the coolest innovations moving forward for drummers. They have so much flexibility to have different sounds and to manipulate it that they could create something new. If you have one drum kit, you have one sound. If you have, um, you know, a set of V drums or whatever type of drums you want to use, you have thousands of sounds that are completely editable. The same way everything else we talked about. If we have a plugin, if we have like, you know, pods or different uh amp modelers it's the same thing if you look at my pods i have like 20 different proprietary sounds that i just sat there and geeked out for for hours on end and i would save those patches so there's something about that from a creative standpoint that makes it it makes it easier and more creative going forward so i just embraced it for that um and i use some of the old school methods too so that that being said, as far as the recording process, I'm totally open to it. Yeah, it's a really good time, man. You have so many options. You could do old school stuff and incorporate that. And and I agree, man. And I got to be honest, like within over the last five years, I think that I I have embraced more the idea of creating a whole other world for the listener, as opposed to like, okay, we're we're in a, we're in a rock band, and this is what we sound like in a room. You know what I mean? I kind of gave up that aesthetic of making records. And then the new concept is like, this is a world that you're entering and it's a complete like illusion, really this illusionary world that you're immersing yourself in. And we're using whatever sort of uh, resources we have to create this world and the experience of the listener. And that's kind of, suits suits me and the band and and all of the app all the applications and resources that are out there you know and it's like you were commenting earlier about before we started recording how you like the guitar tone on um was it the hunger i think mm-hmm. yeah yes yeah it's like i i told you I, yeah that was a direct guitar um reamped there was uh most of that is a 5150 through an actual head and then some of there's a little bit of a, a Mesa Boogie dual rectifier in there, but it was tracked dry, you know. I mean, just with with direct signals. I mean, we were we were running a model as a, just monitoring, so it didn't sound like a you know like a ukulele or something like that when you're tracking it. Right. But, uh, but it's all created, all created within the box, and we're flying in some real sounds from the material world. And it's, uh, but it's all an illusion, really, you know? Yeah. It's, I mean, listen, um, it, that's what it's all about, right? Yeah. Trying to create new sounds. I mean, look at hip hop music. There's, there was nothing real about it. And all of us love great hip hop records. Sure. I mean, there's, they, I mean, they get hats off to them. You know, I mean, most of the music is, was derived from like funk music, James Brown and, you know, you know, Graham Central Station or whoever, whoever it might have been, but they literally embraced it. And it's one of the biggest music forms in the world, right? We embrace it. We, we took it in. And that's going to happen to heavy music. It has already happened. It's, I mean, you, everyone is recording it 
this way. When I went to um, Roadburn, I think it was 2013. It was the year that uh, Trypticon played. Right. Um, and I was backstage and I was speaking with the, um, the guitar player from Trypticon. I forgot his name, but um, we were talking about the recording process. And, uh, you know, he's saying that they use Cubase and how they're recording. And I was like, well, we're doing it like the same way. You know what I like? And he's like, yeah, he's he's basically a recording engineer. And he says, that's how we did the whole record. And I think those records sound phenomenal. Yeah, they're crushing, like, man. They sound great. They sound totally. And they're doing that. And I mean, everyone's kind of doing it that way. So. Um, but, yeah, we're looking for new ways to express ourselves. So embrace it can't fight the technology also sure. uh, we, we kind of touched on this a little bit but um some of your custom guitars man like you got a bunch of cool like guitars that you use too so we had uh, we, we spoke about uh some of the guitar stuff you know we, something to say before we get into those guitars you know we talk about the old school right now you could go to guitar center and for 500 bucks you could buy a baritone guitar and you could be tuned down to whatever the hell you want to be. And that's great, right? Because now you have a different spectrum of notes that you could use to create your sound or whatever it may be. Yeah. But doing that when Winter did it in 1989, tuning your guitar, standard guitar down and doing it, you could not get strings. You you had a lot of other limitations. Um, everything from scale length, string tension, how are you going to intonate it? You know, are you going to be able to slide the saddles back far enough so that you can intonate the guitar in that low tuning, right? Yeah. So that's just a guitar. Now let's take a bass, even more complicated, oh, yeah. right? Right. So, so, um, so the guitars were started out. The the one that you see in the on the Garden page, the one that's like a skull guitar, mm -hmm. the one that Jimmy DeResta made. Um, that was a standard guitar to get that guitar down to a i can't think it was like 25 inch scale to get that down to a literally meant i took the saddle out put it on a grinding wheel grinded down the bottom so that i could slide the saddles back far enough so that the string length would be long enough because otherwise it would hit the floyd rose the back of it right, right, right you have the exactly. saddle slides back the pin you have to be able to get that pin back to a certain point to do that Okay, so now you slide it back in your right thing. But it's still it's still like playing a fucking rubber band. So now what am I going to do? Oh, I need a bigger string to get the, the tension to be the right thing. Now the string won't fit inside the where you have to clamp down the string. <laughs> right? Now I slid the saddle back, but now I can't fit a big string in there. So now I'm taking the saddle out. I'm filing it just enough so the string fits in there. Okay, fine. So that, that was some of the uh, things that you know, lessons I learned from doing that. Then I have John playing bass in winter. He likes playing a Rickenbacker. A Rickenbacker is basically a short scale bass. What is it? 30, 30 inches. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's, I mean, I have baritone guitars that are 30 inches that are longer than a Rickenbacker, but John loves the Rickenbacker. It sounds good with the chords. It, it was like part of his sound. It was like what he liked. He loves Lemmy. He likes that distorted sound. He wants to play bar chords. He wants to play the, the bass like a guitar at times. But it certainly was far from the right instrument to be tuning down because of the scale length. I mean, dude, we were filing the nut out, put, filing the nut out so big that it would snap in half and then putting this big string that looked like it belonged in a low note of a piano. 
so now now you have these big strings. Yeah, you get into it, but now you can't play anything that's that's fast, right? Because even though you got these tremendous strings on it, the strings are still they have to oscillate at a certain amount so that they could produce the note. Right, exactly. But yeah. this 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 wave of this oscillation of the string is big because the note, like when you when you hit a low note on a piano and you look at it, look at the string the way it oscillates versus hitting a high note. So now you have this oscillation. In, so now you have this thing like, okay, I can't slam on the guitar like punk rock because now it's going to start fretting out. And I don't want the strings to be like a bow and arrow where they're like, you know, a quarter of an inch above the fretboard because then it fucking sucks to play. So you had a lot of these different issues. That being said, we did it. It was experimental. And we, we spent a lot of time doing that. And that happened between 1988 and 1990 when we were doing that. We had some guidance with uh, Lou Porcy helped us out and Joe Domjam helped us out. They were some guitar techs that were older than us at the time and they understood our vision. And um, being an A at that time period was was not as easy as it, it, it sounded because there were no guitar strings of, that I needed then. So I had to use bass strings and and then all the other things we spoke about. Well, back, so, back in the late '80s, I don't remember anything ever being tuned to A, man. That's that's the craziest thing about it is like, I mean, I you know back then it was like a lot of people were just an E standard, and you know Sabbath was was tuned lower, but like A was like this this like complete frontier of sound, really. You know, it it was a problem for the actual equipment as well, too. So so there was it was a big deal to do that, but. I knew that it would make it sound different. I totally knew it would make it sound different. And me and John would, would fuck around with it for hours, like tuning it down and all kinds of stuff. Ultimately, we realized that a regular standard Marshall 412 cabinet was not going to work for tuning down like that, especially for what we were trying to do. So next thing I know, I'm plugging into Marshall double 15 cabinets. They used to make a cabinet. I think Lemmy used to use it. It was like a double 15 that had a Celestian speaker in it. It was a 250-watt Celestian speaker. I saw that cabinet in Sam Ash, and I said, that's the cabinet I need. A Celestian, 250 watts, it's a 500-watt, 8-ohm cabinet. I'm going to plug that into my Marshall 2210 100-watt head, and I had two of those. The second one was a slave. I came out of the, out of the head, I split the, uh, the return, and used one as a power amp, power amp section the other one was like my master head i had two of those cabinets john used what a lot of people used back then he used pv i think pete Steele used that cabinet. It was a double 18 210 cabinet needed 18s to, to handle the bass that john was playing he was he was like not working so well with the svt cabinets wasn't happening what we were looking for so the equipment had to be altered too because now you were down at this lower register you're playing kind of like a high-end a high-end bass and a super sub bass so the equipment had to reflect that and had to be able to resonate at those frequencies that we wanted to utilize um that became a whole nother part of the experimentation of like literally just plugging all kinds of equipment um the heads were worked uh the person who worked on the heads was worked for Marshall. He was the designer of the JCM 900 and I forgot his name, but he was a tech and he helped us to, to supercharge the heads and work with the, he went into the tone controls. Ultimately I put a parametric EQ in the, um, 
in the effects loop. And that was basically, uh, that really was a huge help to clean things up and make things work a little bit. So there was a lot of thought process that went into it. Today's day and age, I mean, like we just said, it's, it's it, it basically done for you. You just go buy a guitar and you go buy a Mesa oversized cabinet and you're pretty much pretty good to go. And you could pretty much pull it off and it's, you know, it's it's ready to, to move. You buy a bass, a five string bass, and you do whatever you want. And you could basically tune down to that register. Um, you could tune it down beyond that if you want now. I don't know necessarily if it makes a better song going below that. I never really, I never found any benefit going below that, um, especially with Godin. If I need something lower than that, Tony plays it on his Moog. Just being honest. You know what I mean? Like, I don't really, there's nothing I, there's nothing I need to go below that to do that. Um, yeah, that's, that's the, the fascination with down tuning. You know, I, I, I always thought, I always thought D was like pretty low, you know what I mean? And then it's like, oh, D's not heavy enough. We have to go to C, you know, then it's B. Now it's A, you know, and it's like, damn, you know, it's. it's not, it, it gets negative returns. I've always felt there and it doesn't make any musical. It starts making less musical sense when, when it's when it's in A. It just feels like that's what a grand piano is, right? Like right. On a bass. If you're if you're an A on a bass and you're. And you're playing, it's the same note at the end of the keyboard, right? So it makes some type of a, a musical sense being there. And it's negative returns under that. If you need to be playing a different type of instrument, I think, under there. I, I know some, some folks do it, and it's cool. I hear people do it. I don't necessarily think it makes it, it doesn't, just because you tune it down doesn't always make it heavier. I think the riffs you play make it heavier. And how you play them and how you execute it. Um, but it adds a nice color to it. So those were some of my feelings. The, 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 to get back to your question, I got a little sidetracked on that, but I felt a little of the past would be helpful for the future. So during that, that Skull Guitar was a, um, became an experiment. I ultimately added longer scale neck to it. And then once I started doing that, I realized that I needed to start making proprietary, my own proprietary instruments. And... I like the flexibility. I was already a geek. I have electronics background. I went to BOCES as a high school student. So I did like hot, uh, low voltage wiring and reading circuit boards and resistors. And so I was already kind of a geek at that point in time. I was a car audio installer and I stole security and radios and cars. So I had an electronic background. So ripping pickups out and making pedal boards and opening amps up. None of that stuff really freaked me out. I used to bring them to work and leave them on the shop shop uh you know desk where we worked and repaired like vcrs and stuff and i would i would mess with stuff and make pedal boards and make chords for everyone and so it didn't really freak me out so making the guitars it just it just kind of fell into place like i don't a regular guitar is not going to help me for what i'm trying to do so at that point i started to just make my own instruments and there were already some um places that i could buy you know bodies and necks and select a fret material um fretboard i could make it active and make it inactive you know i got push pull things all over it i could choose the radius uh the bridges and i could hot rod the floor i always like floyd roses i would use like floyd upgrades and upgrade them and it was just fun it was like a car you know you could you could change the carburetor and you could soup them up and you could do different things to it became more of like a hobby 
of just doing it, of just having fun with it and experimenting with it. So that, and then my friends were artists, a lot of them. And uh, some of them were, two of them were furniture makers, Jimmy Mazzatelli and Jimmy DeRester, both amazing woodworkers. I says, yo, man, you want to make me some, some cool guitars? And it took years. They sat on their, on their shops and whatever. We just kind of patient and we did it. And the God and guitars was like, that was like a, just a fun experiment just to make our own headstocks and body shapes and um, textures on the, you know, the finishes and so on. Um, and they suited my needs. They were the proper scale for the key that I was trying to play in. And it all kind of just kind of fell into place. But now you can go buy one of those, like I said, for 500 bucks. You go buy an Ibanez and it's game over. But the fun was in the experimentation. Now, are, are those all six strings or seven strings? I just use six strings. Okay. And I do play a, a six-string bass though, when I play. I play uh, my, well, I play a lot of Warwicks that are five strings, but I have a six-string DR Hardfield that I love. It feels like a, like a guitar. So I've been playing with that more. But yeah, six-string guitars. I never felt the need for the extra string for me. Yeah, we just started playing around with uh, seven strings and um, the A tuning. So I, I just picked up a seven string about, I don't know, like a year ago. And uh, I mean, if you play a Steve Vai seven string, it's not the right scale for the A. It's really, a, it's really usually what happens is, uh, well, now it's different because you can get all the different scale lengths and you can get the extra string. You can even get an eight string or whatever it may be. But the earlier ones were great. They were like, you know, it was a concept of like, well, you have a little low string like the guys in corn use, but they weren't really designed to be in that key. They designed a guitar to be an E and then they just have like one string that's lower. But now you have like all these different uh, scale lengths that you could use. So experimentation, I guess. Right. Yeah, I got mine from uh, from ESP and, um, you know, I told them what what key we were playing in and they, and they, they sent me the guitar and um it's uh, nice. been enjoying it, man. It's like it sometimes it all that it only takes something different to really spark a new like strand of creativity. You know what I mean? Even if it's standard tuning, but in a different key, sometimes that's enough to really just spark your, your creativity, you know? Oh, totally. It's, it's like what we were saying before. You hear something a little different inspires you to play different. Makes you makes you feel a different kind of way, so you play it differently. Um, every time I bought a new keyboard or a new thing, it usually wrote the, the next three songs because I would hear something new in it. Yeah, that's, or, that's I love how that works with, with creativity, man. You just need to somehow some kind of stimulus. You know, you just need this extra stimulus, and you don't. It's it's like a intangible thing almost that will will catapult you into this whole other realm sometimes and i love when that happens absolutely yeah that experimentation is is part of the journey of of creating um it's it's probably the one thing that keeps me interested in music um the experimentation part of it and you know and being in tony's basement it's like a it's it's like being in like you know um like a like a garbage pile of of like effect pedals in crates with keyboards everywhere and it's just stuff everywhere you know just of all different you know like i said from guitar equipment bass equipment keyboards everything it's just everywhere 
And that kind of keeps us going. We just kind of mess around. I mean, Tony's like not even experimental. And I'm like plugging him into all kinds of other effects. And, you know, he's old school. He's like, you know, Hammond B3 and his couple of keyboards he likes to use and all that other stuff he doesn't like. It's too complicated for him. So I'm like the um, I'm like the person who comes in is like, Tony, now play. And he's like, what the hell did you plug me into? You know, and he's and he, he just kind of kind of goes. And it makes him play different, too. You know, the, the, he'll play some different kind of pad all of a sudden because it it sounds different. Man, that, so, yeah. that talk I had with him was was like awesome. And um, I think, you know, that that's that guy is like such a deep resource, such a deep pool of just knowledge and just experience, man. Tony brings a lot to the table. Um not only is he one of my oldest friends and someone I really enjoy hanging with because I learn a lot from him, but he, uh, from a lyrical standpoint and from a musical standpoint, to create with him is fun because sometimes I'll come up with something and he'll do like some different type of interval or I'll be like, Tony, does this really work? And he goes, nah, I might like flat this whatever note here or maybe lose the high note in the chord or whatever. And he understands how to do all that, but he also understands what I'm trying to create. And he goes, no, 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 it needs to be a little darken it up by, you know, make this minor or make this whatever. And that kind of is really, really helpful in the creative process. And I do, tr I do now with, the, with Godin and the newer stuff, I literally try to keep the guitar stuff kind of a little bit more primitive so that it has space for him to do some other voicing over it so that it's not completely full all the time. And because I play guitar and bass in the project, there's not like this personality thing going on where the bass player is like, I want to hear me. Or the guitar is like, I want to hear me. It's like, I'm playing both of them. I'm looking for the team. You know, what, what is the whole, what is the sonically sound for the whole project going to be? And not individual. I'm not so concerned about my one element in it because all the elements are, are thrown into the salad to make it. And yeah, he's, he's a brilliant person, Tony, for sure. We also we also talked about uh, a lot of literature and stuff and like weird fiction and Robert Block and Lovecraft and all that stuff and I was like so excited to talk to someone about that because that's a huge part of like you know the stuff I read the stuff I'm into is all that weird cosmic stuff you know and it was just cool to talk to him about that kind of thing. Yeah, Tony. Tony loves all that. I know you guys definitely connected on the uh, on the literature and stuff. I mean. Tony's one of those people where he wants to always write better. He literally had, takes, I'm not sure where it is, but he goes somewhere, some university, I guess it's on Long Island. He take, literally takes a creative writing class and he enjoys writing. He does, not everything he writes is like what he writes for God, neither. Yeah. I mean, he could, he could write a story about a child, about him as a child growing up in Brooklyn and what he saw walking down the street and it's captivating. And the way he describes like, you know, whatever, a guy shaving ice to make an ice cone or something like that. And he just likes to write. He likes to tell stories and he likes to read. And and that's just something that he's always been interested in. Um, so, yeah, he's he's certainly interesting. Yeah, that was really that was great, man. That conversation. So someday, if uh, there's any plans for Godin to play live, like you would have to actually assemble a band then. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I already know who I would probably, um, I'd be most of the people that are involved in it, obviously, because right. I feel that they're a part of it. 
like uh, Margaret Murphy, which is Steve Murphy from Kings of Troy's uh, sister. She plays violin and, and some cello on the record. She's invited to play. And obviously all the drummers we mentioned, Vic, Scott, Jason. Um, I don't know how we would do that. We'd have to figure that out. But they'd all be, everyone would be invited to do it. As far as I would probably play bass and guitar. I like playing both. I don't necessarily like playing guitar better than playing bass. I like both, actually. So I might play both. So on some um, songs I, you'd be playing bass and some songs you're playing guitar? I think so. I love playing bass. I, I love just being sitting back in the in the track and just kind of locking in with the drummer. I like that feeling. Um, yeah, I'd probably play both. I'd have to probably choose someone that could play guitar and bass so we could just switch rigs, you know? Right. But um, but there's the music's not that complicated. Music's more about a feel and an aesthetic than it is about being um, fretboard gymnastics, you know what I mean? So, because when when I listen to the record, I and and I and that record is still pretty heavily rotated in my in my listening. Even though it came out a little while ago, I still it's still um, part. It's in part of a. I have a playlist. Uh, you know, on Apple Music, you put all these playlists together. There's mm-hmm. like a playlist that, <laughs> that features Godin, It features Winter. It features Evoken. You know, there's like a ton of like that style in there. And then just the LP itself is something that I run still pretty regularly so Thank i always you. i always vi- have it visualized what it would be like to experience that live man and, and i i really do hope someday you know that that's something that comes to uh into realization you know yeah i think it'll probably happen in like a year from now once the the world gets back in order <laughs> i think uh we'll be uh we'll definitely look forward to to doing something I love I love playing live, and I think everyone else does too. I know Voss certainly does. That's for sure. That's what she's been doing for the last thirty plus years. Is is she so, doing what? What's um? I mean, I probably should have just asked her. But like, what what other stuff is she working on these days? As far as music, I mean, she's got a killer voice, man. Oh, Voss is awesome. She um, and she's one of my best best friends too. I consider her one of my best friends. Um, she has her project Hansel uh, und Gretel. And she's been working with Loopy. Loopy and her have been working together. I mean, oh God, I can't. I don't even know how many records she has. She probably has over ten records. Um, so she's still working with Loopy, and they still do. Uh, they're currently working on their next record. They put a record out every couple of years, so she's pretty active. And she's usually they make a record, they tour it. They make a record, they tour it. You know, they tour all over. They go to Russia. They go all over Europe, and. Um, yeah, so she's she's full time, man. She's full time musician. That's awesome. Nonstop. Yep, that's what she does. One of the other aspects of uh, just the stuff that you're doing is like lately you've become my supplement guru, um, as far as like <laughs> what to take and what you know. Because like any any of you guys out there listening probably know me enough over the last like t- you know ten years or so that I've been doing this thing. That, uh, you know, I'm, I'm into health and fitness and training and, you know, eating right and, you know, being a, being healthy, basically. And, you know, supplementation has always been like a huge uh, aspect, you know, of of my my diet and lifestyle and all that kind of stuff. And then but you, you've actually really uh, schooled me on a lot of this stuff. So and when I first met you, I was completely unaware that you had a, a background and that was that's actually your your life's work is uh is doing um, training, like, you know, personalized training and that whole thing. So how do you get started in that? So uh, interesting. It's so weird that these two worlds uh, collide. The, um, I, 
how can I say, well, the, the two separate questions. So the supplement thing kind of started for me. Um, I told you I worked at a, my father had a cost stereo store where we installed and we did electronics. Right. My father passed away. We, we closed the business down. Um, and I had a friend, uh, Paige Bosper. She was in school to be um, a massage therapist. And she was one of my, one of my closest friends introduced me to my wife uh, 25 years ago. And she, I was like her test dummy. And when she was working, you know, she'd be working on me and she'd have like her book out and she'd be like studying the different muscles and, and she was getting ready to sit for her state board and everything. And, and, um, one night her neck was bothering her or something. And I was like, yo, let me work on you. And she's like, yeah, sure. I just kind of mimicked what she was doing to me for like months. And she's like, hey, that's that felt that was pretty good. That was better than like people I'm in class with that are practicing on me. And I'm like, it felt pretty good. And she's like, my neck feels pretty good. I was like, oh, good. I'm glad I was able to help you, you know. And during that time period, we closed my father's business. And he had passed away, and I didn't like the way the medical world had dealt with his glioblastoma brain cancer. But I was young, and I didn't know that much about medicine or, or what was happening. And there was no internet, really, to research things like, they are, like there is now. I started working in a health food store. And in that health food store, I had the graveyard shift. And there were all these books on the shelf. So I would... Um, sit there and I'd read the books that were there. And I started realizing that whether it was uh, Dr. Wild, Mercola, or whoever it might be at the time who was, you know, Gary Knoll, those are the big guys when I was like, um, when I was growing up and they all had universal thoughts on supplementation and they would all agree on certain supplements like vitamin C and zinc and your basics. But then, and then each book would have its proprietary idea about supplementation and herbs and how to treat certain ailments. So I was working in this health food store. And whenever people would come in, the owner of the health food store, I worked in the vitamin section. If someone came in and they had some ailment, he says, you don't prescribe anything. You're going to go over to this book. And this book was called Prescription for Natural Healing. I think they're probably on the fifth edition. I just bought the new edition literally two weeks ago. And I would go in there, you look up the element, you look for the supplement suggestions. And I started reading that book like nonstop. I was like addicted to that book. It was like calling out to me. I was like, wow, look at all these ways to naturally deal with certain things instead of taking maybe, um, you know, really powerful pharmaceutical drugs. These were like natural ways to deal with things. And not only were they, would they help you with the ailments, but they would help your overall general health. And people would come back to this health food store and say, hey, you know, that thing you recommended really helped. I'm like, well, I didn't recommend it. It was very important that I said that, the book recommended. So thank the book. And I said, wow, this is really cool. It feels good when someone comes back in and you're like 19 years old and some woman who has a child that has like, say, like really crazy eczema and is scratching his feet on the rug. So they're bleeding now is no longer having as much of an issue. Right. Felt pretty good as a 19 year old. And I became really intrigued with that. Well, they had an open house at the Swedish Institute and Paige, my friend said, you should go to the Swedish Institute, this school of acupuncture, herbology. I think now it's like nursing. It's um, exercise science. It has a lot of different health related things. But when I went there, it was like voodoo, basically. And I, I attended Swedish Institute. 
I sat for my state board. I became an LMT and I wanted to, I was always into sports and I competed at Woodward as an athlete, which was uh, for BMX and freestyle. And those people from all over the country oh, I went there. I had no idea about that. I competed at Woodward. Yeah, I competed there for three summers. And um, they literally cut lawns and did stuff and saved money to go there, too. And um, I, I competed at Woodward. So I was always into athletics and sports and so on. And I completed that. And I went, wanted to go into more like post-rehabilitation. I worked at Hofstra University and I was like the massage therapist for them for a really short period of time. I was working with some of the people there. And then I slowly started furthering my education and realized I wanted to be more in the post-rehabilitative world. And I, I was a massage therapist for years. Um, I mean, it's like over 20 years now. And I shortly after that went back and did exercise science there. And then I sat for NSCA, ACSM, USAW. I became a Pilates instructor. And, and I, I basically got knighted by everyone. Because at that point in time, everyone was like, ACSM's the best. NSCA is the best. I was like, you know what? I'm knighted by all of them. So everyone just back away from me, please. <laughs> so, um, and that started my journey into the, into the fitness and health world. So the supplements probably started first and then the, and I been taking supplements since then, since like 1990, 1989, 90. Um, and that started my journey into, you know, health, fitness, and just um, training. And I, I stayed in that world, and I stayed in New York, and I practiced here, in the, but mostly on the Upper East, Upper East and Upper West Side of Manhattan was where I started out. And I worked for Reebok for 10 years at their flagship um, um, gym. I worked for Reebok for 10, and then uh, I also worked at Equinox for about the same period of time before I kind of went solo and did my own thing and started my own business in LLC and started just working independently. And um, I became introduced to everything from Olympic lifting to, you know, kettlebells and all kinds of other stuff when I was, you know, back then, I don't even knew what a kettlebell was. So, yeah, this um, is way, but the only people who knew about it were the Russians, really. That was way, way back in the note before anyone knew that stuff i had it's funny when i worked at reebok i can't remember his name but there was a couple of guys who were russian and that's how i became kind of influenced by it and i had just been the my um neurology teacher was also big into kettlebells for neurological training and he was a big believer in it and i needed ceus so i did one of his kettlebell courses and um the russian guys that were at reebok one day were making fun of me and I'm like, dude, why are you laughing at me? I don't understand. I do kettlebells like you. And like, you, you lift like an American. And I was like, huh? I'm like, dude, it's hip extension, man. It's not hip flexion. You're backwards. And I'm like, ah. Oh. And then they started, one of the girls there, Kinga, was, uh, she, she started training with these Russian guys and she was going to do the Girovo sport. Um, you know, where you could do like a million swings in like a minute, whatever it is. Oh, wow. And, and she was a monster, Kinga. And I started training with those guys. I got really into the kettlebells, big time into kettlebells. All I could do for like years was kettlebell. I was getting on the subway with my kettlebells, bringing them to my clients, you know, houses. And, and they were like, what is this weight? You know, they were like, like, why can't I do this with like a dumbbell? 
and I had gotten really involved in the kettlebells and, you know, um, Pavel and some of the earlier people I was, had all their videos and I was entrenched in this kettlebell thing. Oh yeah. Pavel, um, uh, Tatsuline. I have, um, his, uh, that book he did the, uh, power to the people about, you know, it's unbelievable kind of, book. Yeah, great yeah book. totally. And mm -hmm. the, real quick about neural neurology and the kettlebell, uh, it's that's interesting, man, because the anyone out there who's not familiar with what that type of training is, there's the the, the link between your brain and your body is something I think that gets overlooked. And um, like a com essentially a kettlebell training is a compound movement where you're utilizing different. It's not just like you're doing curls or benching or something like that. You know, even though benching engages a lot of stuff too, but. <laughs> Now, what neurologically, what, what are some of the benefits of that? Well, one of the reasons I always love kettlebells, I like them for two different reasons. So I was into the Olympic lifting, right? I'm USAW certified and so on. When I got One of the things that I started to realize was I like the explosive nature and explosive trainingness of kettlebells, right? You could do cleans, clean jerks, snatches, right? Or you could do all your Olympic lifts. Right. which I was doing with an Olympic bar. But the problem was I was already in like my 30s at that point, right? So I started to realize that that Olympic bar was, you know, having it overhead and snapping it up overhead, I started to develop an injury in my shoulder, right? So you have this thing where you're, lock, you're locking your upper body, both hands to a bar, you're cleaning it, you're jerking it, you're snatching it, you're throwing it up over your head. And I have a little bit of scoliosis where my spine is like a little bit off. So okay. now you have something where you're locking, bilaterally locking your hands to a bar and you're throwing it over your head. But you're, you're, you're having asymmetric weight shift because you have scoliosis. So once one shoulder is a little higher than the other, so your alignment is a little bit off. But now you're locking the, the upper body to a bar. So if you're doing a lot of that, now you have like my right shoulder was having was was getting tweaked, right? The humerus was hitting like the um, the acromial space and it was it was rubbing on the bone, right? Because now you're doing this repetitive mo movement, right? And you're doing it under heavy load, right? Right? It's explosive. So you're creating a lot of torque on the joint. So one of my friend, Dr. Scott Weiss um, at Bodie's own, he looked at the MRI. And he looked at me straight in the face. He goes, Steph, you can't keep doing this. You, they can go in there and they could literally file down where you're getting this osteo uh, class, you know, with a bone kind of build. It's a class of blast where it builds up the bone in the area. Like, you know, like the Thai guys hit their shins. So yeah. they, they make their Cal shins stronger. Yeah. The calcification. So you have, now I had this like little calcification in there. And he goes, you have two choices. You can either go in there, you can let them file it down and go in there or you could stop doing this explosive movement over overhead where the joint is rubbing and i was starting to get numbness in my median nerve fingers which is thumb index finger middle finger where it was getting numb i couldn't play guitar i couldn't feel the, my fingers on the strings and i was like oh come on dr weiss i, I love doing the olympic lifts because dude do the kettlebells and I, so i started thinking about what he said and we spoke about it and here's why I like the kettlebells better than an Olympic weight. And this is why I totally embrace the kettlebells. It's unilaterally loading. So it, your, your upper body is able to move independently of each other. 
and your and your brain has this extra little stimulus because you have two different masses that you're moving in the air, but they're not locked in the center of the bar. So you're doing a clean or a jerk or a snatch, but you're doing it independently of each other. And then I started realizing like, oh, I don't need to have a pallet where I got to throw the weight on the floor. I don't have to have this big bar and have to have these weights. I can have a bunch of kettlebells that are underneath my bed. I could do my workout in the morning. I could do clean snatches, jerks, Turkish get-ups, all the, all like the basics, right? And now my shoulder wasn't bothering me because when you lock your hands to a bar, right? And you're tucking the thumb and you're holding the thumb, your hand is locked to that. There is no internal external rotation happening on the limbs. But with a kettlebell, you have the flexibility when you're cleaning and jerking to let the arm internally, externally rotate. That was just enough freedom for me, not for my injury to completely dissipate and not be a problem. So I, the principles of Olympic lifting, I believe in for growth hormone and, you know, fast twitch fibers and all the things that go along with explosive training. Right. It's completely different than endurance training. But now I didn't have the limitations. Plus, I had something I could take on the subway with me and make money with and bring to my clients and have a new modality and do power training with people with a, with a two bowling ball style looking weights. So I completely in, indoctrinated it into my regime when I would be training people. Uh, it had a big learning curve. It wasn't for everyone, but it was completely functional. So now you had, you know, if you have a if you're doing something that's unilaterally weighted if you're using the right side the left side is contracting to stabilize you when you're moving how is that why is that so important well for everything if you're if let's take uh, I, know, I know you're a martial arts person you need to do high intensity training you're going to do a three-minute bout whether you're a boxer a fighter whatever it is it's pretty fucking high intensity yes you need to get in there and you got to move quickly explosively you got to be focused that's what kettlebells were to me I'm not a fighter, but I love that feeling. I love that feeling of doing something hard for short bouts and to really get that benefit of stimulating growth hormone. It was the only, that was like nat nature's like um, uh, fountain of youth in some ways. Cause you know, over 40, 50 growth hormone really drops off big time. The, one of the natural ways to do it is to stimulate it is to do explosive sports. It doesn't have to be a kettlebell. It could be sprinting. That's why the Olympic lifting formula works it's about utilizing those systems and using weights to stimulate those systems so kettlebell became like my my favorite um my one of my favorite tools and functional training if you have fighters and elite athletes yes kettlebell is great but some of these principles still apply for older population right they might not necessarily be an athlete they still need to have good balance and to train functionally Functionally meaning they could stand on one leg and do a bicep curl overhead press, or they could lean down on one leg and do an arabesque and clean it and clean jerk a kettlebell overhead on one leg. Though that's functional. Like that's teaching you how to have balance. That's teaching your your neurological system that I need to I need to balance on one leg while on the right leg while I'm cleaning jerking with the right hand. Then the next step could be standing on the right leg. With the other hand, because now you have a diagonal pattern going across your 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 core. So I started realizing the flexibility of using these different modalities. Kettlebell wasn't my only. I mean, I like BOSUs. I like physio balls. I mean, all these apparatuses are things that teach us to be more functional. So 
if I was training some guy who's 60 years old, 60 through 70, I could still um, do functional training with them the same way I could do functional training with someone who's an athlete. Obviously, I have to change things quite a bit, loading and so on. And that was kind of uh, how I started getting into the functional training. I just felt everyone needed it. I used it as well. I later recently got involved in the blood flow restriction as well, which which I felt jumped piggybacked on top of all that earlier um, education that I had and added like a whole new kind of like thought process of how we look at some of those things. It became like the biohacking of, um, of lifting. And now it's becoming really popular. Wait, so, what's this blood flow restriction stuff? I, I'm not that familiar with that. So um, I, I was really fortunate. I had a, a, chiropr a chiropractor, Dr. Gilbert, who introduced me to uh, Barry Hayden. I think Barry Hayden was like the New York Mets it might have been the Mets or the Yankees. It was one of them. He was a pitching coach. And he's, there was a, a method called Katsu. Katsu was, was developed over 40 years ago by Dr. Sato. And what he had realized uh, 40 years ago when he was at, uh, I guess it was like a traditional Japanese wake, he was sitting on his feet. You know, you have no shoes on. You do that in martial arts too, right? When you're first yeah. starting out, you yep. get you get centered. And he realized that his feet were falling apart. But he realized his calves were really pumped up as if he had a big workout. Well, Dr. Sato was into sports and athletics. And he was actually a lifter. But he's also a medical doctor in Japan. And he says, wow, what what is causing this? I'm having this hypotrophy in my calves. Well, long story short, he designed the machine that would restrict blood flow. There were these cuffs that he put on the upper limbs, right above your bicep, below your deltoid in that little nook, and also on the lower body too, above the quadricep. And they would, it would, the machine would apply pressure and that pressure would restrict um, blood flow, not occlude it, not cut it off, but slow it down. But he's, as his research went on, remember, this took 40 years before it made its way over to this country, kept it in his own wheelhouse in Japan for a while, did tons of research. And he started to realize a couple of really interesting things about restricting this blood flow. When you restrict this blood flow, um, without getting too sciencey, you're there's like the lack of oxygen. When, the, when you have this like compression around the limbs you have this like uh lack of the blood starts to pool there's a lack of oxygen and the body starts to like almost like dilate and the um the pituitary sees almost as if there's like um gets stimulated and it starts to produce like growth hormone oh, wow. and these ana anabolic hormones that that the because the body almost sees it as like a stressor but okay. it's not really a stressor because the blood flow is being slowed down and the epithelial and things start to change as if as if and the body sees it as a stressor. And he started to realize that he when you put these bands on, you're lifting. A, you cannot lift a lot of weight. Like if you're lifting like a say you had two 10 pound dumbbells, you put these cuffs on that feels like you're lifting 
probably 240 pound dumbbells. Really? Wow. And you're like, oh my God, I can't do these bicep curls. And you have these things. And all of a sudden, you start to look like the Hulk and your muscles, the blood starts to pull, all the veins are popping out. And you go and you do your workout. And, but they start, Dr. Sato started to realize that not only was there a pump going on, but there were these other elements that were starting to happen in the body. This pituitary uh, stimulation that produced these elements and, and um, the loads were really light and they, and they helped release the growth hormone. They increased hypotrophy, but they were really light. So you feel like you're having the craziest workout ever, but you're not really, but your brain thinks it is. And it's producing these, these hormones. So Dr. Satu really thought, he goes, wait a minute. What if I use this in a rehabilitative environment? Say you have someone who just uh, blew their knee out, okay, and have a knee surgery. One of the main parts of the recovery is they need to redevelop those quadriceps because they've been sitting for yeah, a while, the right? Atrophy, yep. the, the atrophy starts to set in. But you can't load these people with a lot of weight because they just have an injury, right? So you're, you're to catch 22. So that rehab gets, has to be stretched out over weeks or a month or whatever it may be. But now you put these cuffs on the limb. And you get this hypotrophy and you're making them, say, do a leg extension, right, with a with a cuff on. You have this hypotrophy. You're stimulating growth hormone and repair mechanisms in the blood, right? Because that's what happens, right? You do a heavy workout. The body senses that the sensing mechanisms in your body sense this and they, they send growth hormone. They send repair mechanisms. But you're kind of hacking it with these bands, Right, you man, think your body thinks it's man. Like I, I wish I'd have known that when I had my knee injuries, because that would it took me like a really long time to um, build build up the atrophied muscles, you know, my around like you know my hamstrings and glutes and all that stuff, and you know, and calf and all that. It's and that that would have been a great way to to help recover that. Well, you'll do it now, and and you know what? Here's the best thing about it: you could do that literally till you're like 80 years old, and here's why. The loads are light. You will never get you will never get hurt doing a, um, a ten pound say bicep curl overhead press. We'll keep it simple, right? Won't yeah. get too complicated with the movement pattern, right? But it's like you're doing forty pounds now. If you were to do the you know two double handed bicep curl overhead presses, right, and you were to do that all the time, you might start getting you know, certain tendonitis type of things, but you're not getting any of those issues because you're using a very light load, but you're stimulating all these healing processes. And that's kind of the beauty of it. So what happened was, um, oh, and the Katsu machine back then was a couple of thousand bucks. So one of my clients introduced me to Barry Hayden. Barry had gone to Japan at some point and studied with <coughs> Dr. Sato. Mm hmm and brought it back with him. And he started doing this. He has a, a gym in his home up in Harlem. I went up and I went up and I started studying with him. And I was like, these bands are fascinating. I mean, like, I'm like, Barry, this is the coolest stuff I think I've ever seen. Barry was totally cutting edge. Um, I was learning all kinds of stuff from him. And he had the Katsu machine and he had, it was so expensive, a couple of thousand dollars to throw at something like that. That's not really going to be mainstream. And it's hard to explain 
the mechanism of how all this worked. And even though it had 40 years of research behind it, it, it was a hard thing to bring to the mainstream. And that was really what Barry wanted to do with a, with a doctor named Dr. Gunderson, Jim Gunderson. And they started a company called Be Strong, which were these bands that use, that you could put on your upper and lower limbs it had almost like a like a bicycle tube, but it had like little spaces that would not occlude the blood. It was not a medical tourniquet where it was occluding blood, which is what a lot of people misunderstand the method. Right. And they try to occlude blood. You do not want to occlude blood. You want to slow down venous return. Yeah. Okay. And arterial flow. Yeah. You want to restrict it. You don't want to occlude it. So they developed these bands where it looked like a blood pressure cuff where you squeeze it and you could put the amount of mercury in and the amount of pounds. So it could be very specific with how much air and how much occlusion you were doing. And um, I worked with Barry for a while and I learned the method. I started doing myself. I purchased those bands and those were like 300 and maybe maybe 350 or something. You make your own custom bands, not really something you want to share with people because you're sweating all over it. Right. And then, uh, I guess, like within the last two years, uh, Dr. Uh, Gunderson um, mm. had a certification thing where you can be certified. And I never really wanted to train too many of my clients because I wasn't really certified. I don't know if I could be liability would be like I wasn't really certified in this method. So I studied with uh, Dr. Gunderson, did his certification, and then I went full, full force with the blood flow restriction, Katsu, or whatever you, whoever you want to give the credit to. I give it to Katsu because Dr. Sato invented it. So um, that was how I kind of got into the blood flow modification. Now, you could do everything we just spoke about, functional training, lifting, all these different methods with these cups on that you've been traditionally doing, and you can reap all the benefits from a rehabilitative to uh, physical fitness, to competitive. There was one other element I left out that's really important to understand. When you do explosive training, like sprinting or lifting, um, you're activating fast twitch fibers. You're recruiting them. That's usually what fits into that um muscle fiber system then you have slow twitch that's like your endurance athlete usually you have to recruit all slow twitch fibers before fast twitch become engaged with katsu because you're stimulating this this hormonal response uh pituitary growth hormone all these things because it's happening it stimulates the fast twitch but it stimulates fast twitch under a low load which is an unbelievable thing when you think about it, right? You're, you're literally stimulating fast twitch fibers. If you're over 60 years old or you're a senior citizen, you're never going to recruit fast twitch fibers. You can't do anything really with them to stimulate it wow. with them. Okay, yeah, I see what, I see the point of all this. Yeah, definitely. You understand, you understand what I'm saying? So, yeah. so from, from a longevity standpoint, for an older person, 60 years old or older, or maybe even 50, depending on what their fitness level is, they might not be able to do exercises that are going to get them to maybe heart rates that are like, you know, 90% or which would get you there or lift loads high enough to get you there. But with this restriction of this blood, with the blood flow and oxygen, 
it goes directly there. The muscles think that it's under a massive stressor when it's not really under a massive stressor. It's under a restriction of blood flow. So that is probably one of the most beautiful things about uh, katsu and blood flow restriction. I'm trying try to without getting into too many details about it. That kind of is how I got into blood flow restriction. Yeah, no, I just I I never really heard of that, and that's um, I mean, I've heard the term thrown around, but I never really understood what it was because you know I'm always I'm always interested in doing new things like that, you know, physical training and all that. And um, yeah, it sounds cool, man. I mean, I, I recovered. Well, I'm pretty much recovered already, but yeah, I've, I've always got like little injuries and stuff. And and um, my my biggest fear is like atrophy, and you know, like I I've sprained my ankle recently. I mean, I'm fine now, but there was like a period of time for like a month where I wasn't able to really do any kind of explosive training or anything like that, or, or you know, Muay Thai or any of that stuff. Sure, this would be a great modality for you in the future and, and for your overall fitness. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, dude, it's a fat growth hormone for people 50 plus is like the fountain of youth. So to have something that's non destructive like this, that's non loading, to be able to do that, that's pretty powerful. Very powerful. Yeah, um, I, I've been. It's. I used to not do a whole lot of strength training, but in the last uh, since the beginning of the summer, I really went back to the basics for like you know three days a week. I'm doing deadlift, squats, and bench pressing, and just basic stuff. Like I have like maybe like like a forty minute weight training workout that I do three days a week. And, it, and then the rest of the, my time, you know, the rest of my exercise time is done with, uh, with martial arts, like Muay Thai and boxing and stuff like that. It's a beautiful combination. Three days is a nice, nice amount because, um, you know, you, you really, and I, I actually noticed just the little bit of weight training for a couple of months, like really made a huge difference, even just in my, my endurance. Of course, you're in. You're in, you know, having the hypotrophy. You're having all the circulatory stuff that happens. You're having growth growth hormone secretion. You know, nitric oxide stuff that's happening in the body. I mean, lifting. I think lifting is important. I I personally do it a couple of times a week. I do intervals. I, I'm a big uh, cycling interval kind of person. I, I don't really do too much impact interval stuff. Um, and if I do plyometrics, it's only usually just up, not really down. Like I'm jumping up on boxes and stuff yeah. like that. So, um, but yeah, it's great. I mean, for rehabilitative stuff, because I'm also in the rehabilitative world as well as a massage therapist, I also started having problems with my hands from 20 years, all my joints and oh, stuff. Yeah. And like my hands were like starting to fall apart. And, um, also from a musician, I was having a problem too, right? <laughs> you know, you do seven hours a day of like massage work. You come home, you go to pick up a coffee cup and you're like, ah, oh, my hands are tired. Sure. So I started getting really involved in the um, high speed vibration therapy. Um, and that became like a lifesaver for me as well too, especially when I was working on bigger folks. So I got involved with the... Um, rapid release technologies. I met one of them, uh, I guess it was like an anti-aging conference. Uh, it was one of, maybe, was it Jacob Javis? I can't remember which one it was, but I became introduced um, to them and I started using the high-speed vibration therapy. So all the, the hands-on 
muscle stripping and things I was techniques I was using to separate fibers and stuff manually with my hands started going in a little bit into a different place. I started using this uh, machine that was tuned to a certain frequency and vibrate extremely fast with a very small, the head of this machine was very small, but it was very fast. And it, I think it was actually FDA approved device that actually breaks up scar tissue. So if you had like, say an injury like shin splints, plantar fasciitis, or injuries where it's like usually about like, where it's like a fascia uh, muscle fiber kind of get a little stuck together and just needed to be kind of separated. This machine was like my go-to. And I started using that with all my people that had everything from carpal tunnel, tennis elbow and stuff. Cause it, it actually feels pretty good while you're working on it. And it, it vibrates that frequency and it just helps those fibers to separate. And then I also got involved. I know you see a lot of the trainers now they use the volt machine. Yeah. Yep. Volt's really popular as well. Um, that's not the same thing. So uh, I use that as well, but it's a, it has a different purpose. So that machine, that the head of that leg literally moves like 10 millimeters. I think the black one goes maybe 11 or 12. It goes a little bit deeper. But that's actually a pretty big depth because you could also lean into the machine sure. as well too. Yeah. That'll help with circulation and help break some stuff up. But for literally breaking up scar tissue and fascia type issues, the RRT, Rapid Release Technology Machine, um, is something that is like whenever I go do a massage appointment, I bring those two machines with me. And those those are definitely in my toolbox. So those, those were other technologies uh, that I incorporated. Just because, you know, I'm a geek, so... <laughs> i mean i mean dude you're a, a fucking renaissance man <laughs> you know? i try i try to do a little listen i love what i do and i'm always trying to keep it interesting and you know after you know 20 years of doing massage and training i mean i've seen a lot of things come and go and i feel like i never find that one thing's better than the other you just take elements of different uh, methods and you incorporate them all and you just use what's right for the different people that you're with. You have to be flexible uh, with different, different types of populations, you know, elderly populations, you know, a lot of the younger coaches and trainers, they don't want to work with the elderly uh, folks. And I'm like, why not? Like, Oh, cause it's so boring. You can't do anything. I go, but it's not about you. This is about them. They're paying you. You should be excited for that 70-year-old that couldn't get off the toilet but now can because they have quadriceps and they can stand up without rocking themselves forward and coming out of the off the toilet. To them, that's pretty exciting. And by the way, that person will send you to every single person they know and you help them to help them with their daily life activities. You don't think they're going to tell their daughter or their grandchildren or, or anyone else. So every time you create some type of positive uh, lifestyle change for someone, that's your advertising right there. So I always try to look for different methods to incorporate. So I, I work with them all. I actually like the older population and the older population folks, they're retired. They could train with you in the middle of the day when all your working folks can't. That's true. Yeah. Yep. They have You're working. They have flexibility. All my older folks, listen, I'm, I'm busy from basically 5.30 a.m. through 11.00. I get a couple of the housewives around 11. They do Pilates with me or whatever. But my retired folks, 
they're like, what time do you want to come? I'm like, I don't know. How's like one o'clock in the afternoon, one through four o'clock? Sure, come whenever you want. If you're going to be a full-time trainer or massage therapist, those hours in the day are very valuable to you. Otherwise, you're going to be working from 5 a.m. till like maybe 10, and then you're not going to work again from 5 till 8 o'clock at night. Yeah, it's a pretty you're cram in all those people in that, that window of the evening, you know. Yep, and you'll have a different, and you'll break you'll break it down a little bit differently. So, I like those populations, and those people are really grateful when you work with them too, because for them it's not about necessarily being stronger or faster, but being functional is really important to them. Um, being able to bend down and pick up the paper without their back going out might be a little important to someone who's seventy. Um, or being able to get in and out of their car without their knee bothering them, or whatever it may be. I mean, these issues go on all the time. Yeah, everyone has everyone has some kind of weak link or injury or something, so you have to kind of be able to work around them. So those are my workarounds, and those are some of my uh, thoughts on some of the new newer things that are out there, and um, older things too. All the old stuff works too. Well, Steph, it was great catching up with you, man. And uh, man, this is a pretty epic. Uh discussion we had man it's awesome <laughs> yeah it's great geeking out with you about some of this stuff hell yeah man i think uh i think i i owed an epic episode like this to the listeners man so this is uh this was great excellent mike i love talking to you always a pleasure we'll have to catch up for uh for a drink or something in the near future right on man thanks for listening everyone and i'll talk to you next week <laughs>